Hi, I'm Dr. Jeff Levine. I am professor and director of women's health programs in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School here in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And today I'm gonna to be talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS and its association with cardiometabolic risk. What I hope to accomplish today is to explain to you the prevalence of PCOS and its association with cardiometabolic disorders how to appropriately diagnose patients with PCOS, and help describe selective therapies for this condition. But most importantly, I want you to recognize as primary care clinicians the importance that you play in terms of identifying and managing these patients. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is actually the most common endocrine disorder of women of reproductive age. It can account for as many as 5 to 12% of premenopausal women, depending on ethnicity and other variables. It also has a very strong genetic component, about 35% of mothers, 40% of sisters, and affected patients. So why do I think that polycystic ovarian syndrome is actually a condition that should be managed by primary care clinicians? First of all, it's the most common endocrine disorder in women of reproductive age. So if you see women of reproductive age in your practice, you're more likely to encounter it. And because of the new pap smear guidelines, women are often not going to be seeing an OBGYN more than every three to five years, if at all, because they might be coming to you for their cervical cancer screening. Many of these patients, the diagnosis is often significantly delayed. There's no clear etiology. We know it's a complex interaction of genetics and environment. There's no universally accepted diagnostic criteria because there's a variable clinical presentation and there's no specific diagnostic test. So again, these patients, their diagnosis is often significantly delayed, sometimes by years. And that leads to a higher risk of complications. They are already at a very high risk for cardiometabolic disorder. They have about a fourfold increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes. About 50% of them already suffer from obesity and that's even compared to age match controls. They have higher risk for dyslipidemia, obstructive sleep apnea, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and subsequent cardiovascular disease. And because, again, the effect on their quality of life, these patients are much higher risk for mood disorders, including depression and anxiety. So while there's no universally accepted diagnostic criteria, the one I think that is most accepted is the Rotterdam criteria. These were actually developed back in 2003. And Basically, it involves two of three criteria being met. One, does the patient have hyperandrogenism? And that could be clinical. Do they suffer from overt hirsutism, significant acne, or male pattern baldness? But it can also be diagnosed biochemically by high serum levels of androgen. Does the patient suffer from oligomenorrhea? In other words, do they get menstrual cycles that are more than 35 days apart? Or they get fewer than nine menstrual periods a year? Or do they even have amenorrhea, no periods for at least three consecutive months? Or do they have what are called polycystic ovaries? And there are specific ultrasound diagnostic criteria for this, but it could be based on one ovary. The most important thing is even if a patient meets two or three of these criteria, you always need to look and evaluate and exclude secondary causes. So when you're evaluating patients, obviously you wanna get a very thorough history, you really want to focus on their menstrual history, if they have any family history of polycystic ovarian syndrome. They might not obviously present with significant acne or hirsutism because they might be already getting treatment for it. So you certainly want to find out if they've been treated for those conditions. 
You certainly want to make sure they're not suffering from an eating disorder or excessive exercise, which can affect their menstrual period, and make sure they don't have some of the common consequences of polycystic ovarian syndrome, such as sleep apnea or uh, mood disorder. In addition to a good physical exam, you know, look for signs of hirsutism because about 75 to 80 percent of patients with hirsutism actually have PCOS. Look for conditions like acanthosis nigrans, male pattern baldness, significant acne. A pelvic exam is actually not necessary or indicated unless the patient's having symptoms that would make that helpful. When you are doing lab workup for polycystic ovarian syndrome, you don't have to order the whole kitchen sink. You basically, the purpose of lab work is not to diagnose PCOS, but really to exclude other treatable causes and also to detect and treat long-term metabolic complications. So when I order the lab test, I really focus on what is the clinical presentation of the patient. If they have significant signs of hyperandrogenism, such as hirsutism or significant acne, then I'll check a serum total testosterone. Only if they have very high levels or marked hirsutism or signs of virilization that came on rapidly, then I'll also add a DHEAS test. In terms of if they present with oligo or amenorrhea, certainly want to do a pregnancy test, TSH, and a prolactin test. Those are pretty standard for patients who present with amenorrhea, oligomenorrhea. I will also check an FSH, an LH, and an estradiol level because I want to rule out a hypothalamic amenorrhea or primary ovarian insufficiency. However, unlike what you may have been taught, you really do not check an FSH and LH to look for the ratio because actually many things can affect that ratio. And so it is not a reliable way to diagnose or rule in polycystic ovarian syndrome as many of you have been taught. If a patient presents with both hyperandrogenism and oligomenorrhea signs, you also want to check 17-hydroxyprogesterone to rule out something called non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which can often mimic polycystic ovarian syndrome. But only if patients present with centripetal obesity, stria, buffalo hump, would I also check a 24-hour urine-free cortisol. The point is, only order the lab tests that really follow with the patient's clinical presentation. And again, you're doing those lab tests to rule out or exclude other causes Obviously, once you make the diagnosis, you certainly will look for things like a two-hour glucose tolerance test or hemoglobin A1C to assess their risk or presence of diabetes, a lipid profile, liver tests to rule out fatty liver disease, and certainly you might want to perform tests to screen for not only mood disorders, but obstructive sleep apnea. You usually do not need to do an ultrasound to make the clinical diagnosis. These are uncomfortable, expensive tests that are really only needed if a patient only meets one other criteria, if they only present with oligo or amenorrhea, or if they only present with signs or symptoms of hyperandrogenism. Because again, many women who have polycystic ovaries on ultrasound actually may not have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So if you have an ultrasound and incidentally, a patient is found to have polycystic ovaries, but they don't meet the other two criteria, you do not need to do a further workup, and you certainly would not make that diagnosis based solely on ultrasound findings. So there's really five main goals you want to accomplish in terms of treating or managing patients with PCOS. First and foremost, you want to manage their underlying metabolic abnormalities because you want to reduce their risk for both type 2 diabetes and subsequent cardiovascular disease. You also want to prevent endometrial hyperplasia and subsequent endometrial carcinoma because of their chronic anovulation. 
You want to ameliorate their hyperandrogenic features that can really affect their quality of life, such as hirsutism, acne, or hair loss. You want to provide contraception to those who are not pursuing pregnancy, and you want to help with ovulation induction for those who are pursuing pregnancy. Certainly, when you focus on the metabolic abnormalities, like I said, over 50% of these patients will meet the BMI criteria for obesity. The weight loss, even 5 to 10%, can restore both normal ovulatory cycles, it can improve pregnancy rates, it could decrease their serum androgen levels to improve hirsutism, and can even reduce their metabolic risk. So obviously you want to emphasize diet. There's actually no superior type that's been found to help PCOS patients. You want to certainly encourage exercise because it can both improve ovulatory function and insulin sensitivity. And in certain patients, you may want to consider both pharmacologic therapies for obesity, as well as even bariatric surgery if indicated. In terms of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, I do have a low threshold to start patients on metformin because it not only reduces their insulin levels and possibly their androgen production, it helps restore normal menstrual cycles in addition to helping reduce their risk for onset of diabetes or manage their diabetes. In terms of dyslipidemia, I use the same treatment guidelines as non-PCOS patients of whether or not to start a patient on a statin. In terms of preventing endometrial cancer, because these patients have had a three times higher risk of developing endometrial cancer, certainly the, the best way is to use combined oral contraceptives. You can do that, or you can actually use the combined vaginal ring or patch are also acceptable. You can use a progestin-releasing IUD, especially if the patients are having issues with their bleeding or you can even use cyclic or continuous progestins. All of those things will help reduce endometrial hyperplasia and subsequent cancer. I tend to prefer the combined oral contraceptives because they have the added benefit of reducing acne and hirsutism quite effectively. And so it's that second non-contraceptive benefit as well. Metformin is actually not recommended. It has not been shown to effectively reduce endometrial hyperplasia and subsequent cancer. In terms of treating androgen excess, I really just want to focus on the systemic treatment. You know, certainly there are topicals and there are procedures that patients can have to address their hirsutism and acne. But in terms of systemic use, I usually will start with, again, a combined oral contraceptive, not only reducing their risk for endometrial hyperplasia, if they don't want to be pregnant, helping provide effective contraception. And then again, the third benefit is it's one of the best ways to reduce signs of hirsutism and acne. You do have to give patients realistic expectations. It takes up to six months to see a significant improvement. If a patient is not improving after six months, I will often add spironolactone because, again, it works very well synergistically with the combined oral contraceptive to further improve hirsutism and acne. As you remember, spironolactone is a teratogen, so it's good if they're already on an effective contraceptive when you prescribe it. So again, what I want to summarize is polycystic ovarian syndrome is the most common endocrine disorder in women of reproductive age, and early diagnosis is critically important for mitigating both cardiovascular risk and improving quality of life in these patients. And making the diagnosis can be challenging, so you really need to have a high index of suspicion, especially for women who present with signs of hirsutism or oligomenorrhea, and because, again, these patients are much more likely to be seen by a primary care provider than their OBGYN, and most patients do not unsolicited go to see an endocrinologist, I think we are best suited 
to identifying these patients early and managing them effectively. Remember, the finding of polycystic ovaries on ultrasound alone is not diagnostic for PCOS, and you want to individualize lab tests and the need for transvaginal ultrasounds based on the history and physical. Diet and exercise, as for many conditions that increase the risk for cardiovascular disease, are first-line therapies for PCOS. And metformin can reduce insulin resistance and diabetic risk. It can help restore ovulatory menses, but it is no longer recommended for the treatment of androgen excess or prevention of endometrial hyperplasia. So you want to consider other therapies as well for those conditions. And again, combined oral contraceptives can reduce hirsute features, improve acne, reduce endometrial risk, and provide effective contraception for patients who need and want it. So I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. And I want to wish you all the best in the care of all your patients, particularly your women of reproductive age who may be at risk or may have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Thank you and have a great day.